Hello, I'm Stephanie Preisner and you're listening to Basically. In this week's episode, I speak to political correspondent Gavin Riley. This is what I imagine is the first episode in a series of episodes we're going to be doing about Irish politics. Things change really fast day to day in Irish politics and we're just about to get a new government at some point in the next few weeks. And in order to cover those stories, we kind of need to have a basics, politics 101, let's say. Who are Sinn Féin? Who are Fianna Fáil? Who are Fianna Gael? Where did it all start? And so this week's episode is a sort of an introduction to Irish politics. I think that in this way, we can sort of build the blocks we need to keep up to date on a sort of a weekly basis with what's going on in Irish politics. Gavin and I chat through the foundation of the three main parties in the state. We touch on some of the other parties too. I hope you enjoy it. There is some history in there, some politics. Uh, I found it really interesting and Gavin is a fountain of knowledge. If you have any questions, you can send them to me on Instagram at Stephanie Preisner or on Twitter at Steph Preisner. Also, side note, if you are enjoying this podcast, the best thing you could do for me is to rate it and review it wherever you listen to it. Thank you so much. Gavin, hello. Thank you for joining me. Good to have you, Steph. Thanks very much. This is a topic that if it were a school subject, I would totally zone out of. But since I've had my own agency and my own interest in politics, it's something that I've been trying to cultivate. Mm. I think everyone is disinterested until they suddenly have to start paying income taxes and then they start caring about how people propose to spend the taxes or whether they agree with the laws that are used to funnel their taxes or all of that. It's funny how much more people get invested when suddenly they actually have some sort of financial stake in the game. It's not unsurprising though. And I think that it was only recently that I started to realise that depending on what party was in power, that had actual financial implications in my pocket. Different parties want to spend your money differently and different parties want to spend more or less of your money differently. And so it really does change your bottom line. It does go beyond, of course, uh, you know, finances as well. The different parties have different social outlooks. They believe that society should be constructed or should abide by certain rules. You know, for example, you know, it would have been difficult up until a few years ago to even think of any political party who would actively campaign for a referendum on repealing the Eighth Amendment or a referendum on same-sex marriage. But there's always been some political differences. So the party that you would vote for could end up influencing whether there was a referendum on same-sex marriage or to allow greater access to abortion. So, you know, there's much more to it than than money, of course. But no doubt when people do get to working age and suddenly they feel like they have a financial stake, that, of course, people are a little bit more likely to sit up and pay closer attention. And do some parties... And we'll get into the parties individually in a minute, but do some parties in general care more or only about economics and more care about society and people? Or do they each have policies on both? I think they they all care to to some degree about both. I mean, there are some parties that are certainly more vocal around um, 
social issues, if you want to call them that, and who are less, uh, you know, vocal or less interested on financial stuff. But then the opposite is probably true of some other parties. But I think any party that only campaigned on social issues or only campaigned on financial issues wouldn't get very far. And I think, you know, everything is so closely linked. You can't have a certain society that works in a certain way. I mean, like, let's say, just take a, a completely random example. Let's say you're a political party that wanted to... Um, you know, basically rewind society so that people were able to live off only one income, that a household could be comfortably run off only having one person at work and that the other person, presumably in many cases, the mother would be staying at home as a full-time childminder. That obviously has massive financial uh, consequences because you either have to figure out how you're going to structure society so that one income is enough to work off or you're going to have to subsidise those homes so that the one income that they have is enough to pay for uh, you know, both adults if, if it is a two adult household and the number of kids that they have. So these things always interact. So any political party that only talks about one and, and not really talks about the other is always going to be operating in a bit of a vacuum because money makes the world go round, but you do then have to decide what you're going to do with the money that you have. But I feel sometimes that the parties, and they usually are kind of the smaller parties, that sh- or maybe it's like a prejudice that I have, but I think a party that shouts very loudly about societal issues or one issue in general, even though I may fully support what they're shouting about and, and, and align with their vision, I'm sort of untrusting of their capacity to deal with a big budget you know like I feel like a, like to be able to manage the income and tax of a whole country I feel like if they're shouting about one particular issue they're very expert in that issue and then I just wouldn't maybe vote for them because I would be afraid of well yeah you'll be great for that area but what about all of this other stuff? Yeah, I, I think that's probably a fair criticism. I think it, there there are very few examples in Ireland of, of parties that have almost just been single issue parties. But one that the one that comes to mind for me is is back in 2016 when Renewa uh, was running in its first general election, and we're very big on this idea of a flat tax. So where currently you have the idea of you're allowed to earn a certain amount of tax at a lower rate, and then a higher rate kicks in as you earn more and more. They completely opposed that and it was just their their worldview that if you had a flat tax rate, people would feel more encouraged to take overtime, that they maybe they wouldn't feel like the tax man was going to take an, un, an unfair chunk out of their wages. But they also felt that the um, if you suddenly gave higher earners a very significant tax cut, they would of course therefore have more money and they would be more likely to spend more money. And of course, if they are spending money, then someone else has to get it. This idea that, you know, wealth would trickle down, that if you are earning 50,000 a year, for example, uh, you know, 15,000 of your income is taxed at 40%. If you cut that back down to 20%, suddenly you've got an extra three grand in your bank account at the end of every year. And if you go shopping, you're going to have to go and buy stuff. And of course, if you are buying stuff, then that's good news for whoever is selling you the stuff and whoever is making the stuff that you bought. So it has this this kind of natural trickle on. Yeah, absolutely. But then there's this follow-on issue to that. It might be good for the economy in general, but if the government has gotten used to having you know, that that 3,000 extra that they're now giving you back, how is the government going to pay for all the stuff that people don't want to negotiate away? Because people might still like having loads of doctors, loads of nurses, loads yeah. of guards, loads of teachers. Uh, you know, they might like having loads of new motorways and loads of new buses and loads of new train carriages and everything else the governments pay for. Um, and how are you going to get by if suddenly you start leaving more money in people's pockets instead of uh, taking it off them and paying for you know, the public services and for social services and, and childcare and everything else. So it, it was a, it's an example of how if you are very vocal on one issue, you can sort of feel like you come unstuck then when it comes to anything beyond that, that one thing that you're cribbing about. And so 
okay so maybe what would be good is we can come back to renew as one of the smaller parties yeah. but you can't talk irish politics without talking about the three and i would have before said the two big parties yeah. but the it three was always big the big parties two and now, now it is the big three now yeah the fianna fáil fianna gael and sinn fein now my understanding and please do correct me because my understanding comes from my granddad who was died in one fianna faller and uh you know, he had a way of editing stories so that Fianna Fáil always came up trumps. But um, so my basic understanding is Ireland 100 years ago was owned by the British. Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins were two buddies and they were like, right, we're going to get Ireland back from the Brits. And Eamon de Valera sent Michael Collins off to the UK to get Ireland back. While he was there, Michael Collins was faced with a dilemma. You can either have none of your country back or you can have 26 counties back in a vacuum Michael Collins made the decision to sign the treaty and come back without the six counties Eamon de Valera was not happy with this the people who stuck with Eamon de Valera and who wanted all of it are Fianna Fáil and the people who support Michael Collins and thought he did the best he could do in a turkey situation are Fianna Gael that's, that's by and large, that's a pretty good explanation of it, uh, I think, by and large. Uh, the one thing that you have to, to factor into all of that as well is that at the time, before they had this big falling out over whether they should have accepted the lesser solution of 26 counties or whether they should have held out for full independence for the whole island, um, at the time, they were both parts of a party called Sinn Féin. And confusingly, um, although there are some people who disagree with this, uh, the Sinn Féin of today is not quite the same Sinn Féin of uh, 1919 when when all of this broke out and maybe we'll we'll come back to that and um, the only thing that that's uh, in any way uh, needs a bit of clarity in the the explanation that you've just given which is by and large is, is pretty much on the money um michael collins didn't quite come back with the 26 counties what he came back with was um independence for the full island but not quite full independence so it was actually for all 32 counties but it wasn't a complete we're out of the empire we're now out on our own two feet we can have our own rulers we can have our own currency all, all the sort of stuff right. he did come back with with uh, increased decision making power uh, for Ireland but we would still be what was called a dominion of the British Empire so it wasn't complete and absolute independence that Ireland had been looking for um, he described it as the freedom to achieve freedom which was probably a a fair enough thing that he basically thought that you could use this as a starting point and that you could then build on that to develop your own freedoms afterwards um, where the 26 counties came into it is that the treaty did allow um, the northernmost six counties to break away and to rejoin the UK as which a full kind did, of member party which, they then, which they then did yeah so it was and so, it was provided for but that was just because of the the population of that area and you could argue that had the six counties remained part of a new independent Ireland that there would have been a different kind of civil war because you'd have this massive chunk of people up in the northeastern corner of the country who, who didn't want it but but by and large that is basically it yes those who were in favour of the compromise that Collins brought home ultimately became uh, Fine Gael. there were a few other smaller parties which sort of all then you know snowballed eventually to become Fine Gael. and those who opposed the compromise that Collins brought home led by Eamon de Valera ultimately became what is today Fianna Fáil and so if the two of them f- firstly belong to Sinn Féin um, then there's kind of a three-way split once that six counties things happen. So where does Sinn Féin come into that trilogy? So Sinn Féin actually has its origins not as a political party, but originally as a newspaper. 
uh, back in the 1880s. Uh, this is probably beyond the, the realm of what you want to talk about, but the 1870s and 1880s were a really important time on so many different fronts, but largely because A, um, the Brits built a massive, massive railway system in Ireland. I think there's stats like that back in 1850, there was only something like 35 or 50 kilometres of rail line on the island of Ireland. But by 1900, there was like three and a half thousand kilometres of railway. So suddenly it then became really easy to get around the country. Sport mm-hmm. takes off in a really big way at this time because suddenly transport is much easier. You're not reliant on a horse and cart to get big stuff from one point to another. But what's also really important is that around the same time, there's a revolution in technology and it's much easier to produce a newspaper. So suddenly okay. it is easy to produce a newspaper and also because of the railways, it's easy to distribute that newspaper and to get more people reading it and to word gets expose out. your ideas. So around the time, um, a guy called Arthur Griffith, who does end up getting involved in the political party Sinn Féin, sets up a newspaper called Sinn Féin, which is trying to gather support for the idea that Ireland is not better off as a part of the empire or as a part of the United Kingdom, that Ireland would be better served by having Irish people making Irish decisions for the Irish people in an Irish parliament. Funnily enough, that involves basically using the railway that the Brits had just built and using it to undermine British rule in Ireland. But, but <laughs> such is the, the Irish solution to an Irish problem. But anyway, this, this kind of snowball and obviously there had always been this long-standing view that Ireland should not be part of the empire that it should be independent and this yeah. is why you had 1798 and it's why you had Daniel O'Connell as a great emancipator and, and everything and so on and sometimes when you say names of history like Daniel O'Connell and Arthur Griffith I'm like oh my god history I can't cope but I'm know, bearing with you. I'm bearing with you. And I'll, and I'll try not to turn people off by talking too much more about all of that. But it, it does obviously give rise, Arthur Griffith, with this newspaper, and there's there's all these other different movements at the same time who are trying to promote the idea of Ireland having, if not necessarily full voice. independence, at least more autonomy, that you might still yeah. be part of the British Empire, but you should still have some uh, power to make your own laws in Dublin for Ireland and not have to funnel everything through London where you're only a minority voice and you don't necessarily get heard. And this leads to an idea called Home Rule, which is basically that idea that you'd still be part of the British Empire, but you get an Irish Parliament. That ultimately gets put on hold because of World War I. Uh, that Home Rule had been passed and the House of Commons had agreed to basically set up a new Parliament in Dublin, an Irish Parliament for Irish Affairs. World War One comes along and everyone thinks it's uh, suddenly, maybe this isn't the right time to go fundamentally tinkering with how decisions are made. Um, but a small number of people uh, who identify themselves as Sinn Féiners because they are proponents of for the Arthur paper. Griffith's idea uh, or work for the paper or have, have the same sympathies as the paper uh, in 1916 decide that we're not prepared to wait any longer and they mount what we now know as the Easter Rising where they try to declare a new independent Irish Republic uh, headquartered in the GPO and at the time actually it wasn't hugely popular and it didn't have broad public support but when the original found uh, the signatories of that proclamation as everyone knows them your Patrick Pierce's and the like um, the Brits execute them for what they've done and it's actually in the process of executing them that suddenly the Brits end up attracting they become martyrs and the Brits end up attracting a lot more support to their cause Um, so out of the, the remnants of that rising out of the remnants of that failed revolution Sinn Féin doesn't just become a movement or a newspaper it actually formally becomes a political party and in uh, 1918, which is supposed to be the first election then after World War One has ended, that we were overdue an election because it was supposed to happen every few years. It had been suspended because of World War One. Um, in the meantime, Home Rule has become an unacceptable compromise and a majority of the seats which represent Ireland 
in what was at the time the UK Parliament are won by this brand new political party Sinn Féin and their whole mandate is if you elect us we are not going to Westminster we're going to gather in Dublin and we're going to set up our own parliament anyway and Sinn and Féin so that win. was that included Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera yeah, they were two of the time. members yeah. uh, of the, the first thing. In fact, funnily enough, um, when you go back and look at the roles, if anyone is so bothered, if you want to go back to January the 21st, 1919 and look at the roll call for the very first meeting of the Dole, which is just the Sinn Féin MPs who have decided to gather in Dublin instead of going to London. Um, Eamon de Valera is marked as being absent and Michael Collins, although he was marked on the day as being present, was also actually absent. Uh, and the reason why they were both absent is because Eamon de Valera is in prison in Britain and Michael Collins is actually conspiring to try and have him broken out of prison. But they reckoned that if Michael Collins announced himself to be absent on the day, that the Brits would be paying attention and they'd go, hang on, where's Collins gone? And they'd realise that actually never he, was changed. Cons- he was conspiring What's to try and get Dev out of prison. Uh, so he was marked as being present, but in actual fact, he wasn't there because himself and Harry Boland were actually off trying to break De Valera out Weren't of prison. Those- but... Weren't those cahoots happening only a few months ago in the doll? Uh, they, well, this this sort of voting on behalf of someone else who wasn't actually there. <laughs> yeah, slightly different okay. circumstances. Yeah, but it, it is a, it's a common trade. It's funny how things don't really change. But yes, to, to go back to your original question, that was Sinn Féin, the political party. Um, now, that Sinn Féin party, after the breakaway and after the split into what became Fianna Fáil and what became Fine Gael, basically dissolved or went into complete dormancy and ended up being refounded, sort of, in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, legally speaking, the Sinn Féin of today is not the same Sinn Féin as back then. Um, the new Sinn Féin, if you want to call it that, uh, took a legal case um, a few decades ago trying to get access to the old Sinn Féin's bank accounts, which were sitting there untouched in the meantime. And it went all the way to, to the Supreme Court in Ireland. The Supreme Court said, no, you're not the same Sinn Féin. You have the same name and you share a lot of the same ideals. You aspire to the same goals, but you are not, but strictly not speaking, the same, same organisation. But they, they, they still consider themselves to be the sort of the, the carriers of the same flame or they consider themselves to be the same organisation, if not the same kind of legal structure. I'll come back to Sinn Féin because I want to talk about um, the IRA, but not right now. Mm. So, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin all start, have their roots in the same place. And then the three parties, well, they just all seem sort of like adjacent to each other in a way that like navy and dark blue are. And so (laughs) I'd like to um, understand what the difference of their ideologies is and try and move away from history to... Now, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin, what is the difference between them in terms of me and my life? Like if I vote for, let's imagine that if I vote for Fianna Fáil, like an entirely Fianna Fáil world, in their view, if they had all power, what would it look like? And then the same with Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin, if they had complete power. Yeah, I, I get you. And, and it's a worthwhile question to ask because I suppose, uh, and just to, to put a lid on, on the previous chat, ultimately, no matter what which side of the civil war you were on, you sort of have to accept that it's over, that we arrived at a particular solution and there is no point defining yourself based on the attitude you had in a foregone conflict because it's over now and the world has moved on and the idea of 26 counties versus 32 has become sort of settled. So it's a kind of a good question as to how the parties would, would, would react to differently. And I suppose... Um, what what makes it quite difficult to answer 
is that people would sort of struggle to tell the difference between what a country completely run by Fianna Fáil entirely to its own whims would look like and, and how that will be different to a Fine Gael uh, version of the same country. The, yeah, because the that, my the, understanding is that with Fianna Fáil, there'd be more GAA and with Fine Gael, there'd be more rugby. But that's also that's just kind of a, It's a good way. I mean, it, it, your, your grandfather, in fairness, was, was pretty good at the, his, his choice of analogies or his his, his potted histories. Um, that That's kind of become more that way in, in terms of class. But I suppose that maybe has its links to what the major differences might be. And that is that throughout the last 80 or 90 years, um, certainly when you take the whole 26 versus 32 counties question out of it, um, Fine Gael has, by and large, been more about... Um, if this isn't too kind of fancy down a way of putting it, sort of market-led solutions that generally speaking, it's, it's, it's more about um, letting you have more of your own money, that slightly lower tax idea, and then allowing, uh, so the state wouldn't necessarily intervene in the market in a lot of ways. And they sort of trust that uh, when push comes to shove, that if they allow the world to just organise its own affairs, that someone will realise, hey, you know what? Society needs housing. And that by and large, then some private person will come along and say, I will build housing and I will fulfill that need. And that, broadly speaking, the, the state... will dictate yeah. what it wants. So the the, the, so, the the state doesn't have to intervene in that. And that, that is, is it's that a philosophy kind of that... kind of a centre... So there's all these terms like left-wing, right-wing and centre. Mm. And do those... My understanding of what you've just said is that lower tax which Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael kind of propose is that say I earn a hundred euro uh, in a week mm-hmm. they let they tax me and I get let's say 80 euro of it back into my pocket and then I can decide what I want to do with that 80 euro I can go to the hairdresser I can put a deposit on a house whatever yeah, go, ahead, um, go out for a sesh do whatever you like go out for a sesh do whatever you want it's my money I earned it I'll spend it as I like mm. but that a left wing and moving then towards Sinn Féin, they would have higher taxes. So I earn 100 euro and they give me back 50 euro of it. And I can spend that 50 euro however I want. But the things that I need, like I need a doctor and I, I need a house, those things are paid for by that other 50 euro that they took off me. Yeah, that, that, that's by and large, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, what becomes confusing when you talk about left and right is that there's uh, there's liberal left versus right and then there's economic left versus right. But but in both cases, basically what right wing means is that you tend to leave things alone or leave things as they are and allow the world to sort of organise its own affairs. Uh, so when it Which comes sounds to... sounds great, except that sometimes people have needs and you have well, to look out for other people. Well, this is a, a perfect illustration of that is the last couple of years that if you completely allowed the market to try and sort out the housing situation, then that has pretty demonstrably failed. That We allowed the market to figure out housing for most of the period between the year 2000 and 2008 or 2009. The market overprovided. It turns out that there wasn't a market for all of those houses. And then suddenly when builders weren't able to borrow the money to actually build those houses, then housing basically disappeared. And because of the few years where no one was building houses, now we have this massive deficit of housing where no matter how many houses you might try to build up, there's going to be this massive lag where there isn't enough homes for all the people who need them. Um, To go back a few minutes though, um, you said that... um, 
Fine Gael would be towards the the right wing end where they would like you to have uh, fewer taxes and they'd like you to basically spend your own money however you think is appropriate and Sinn Féin would be at the opposite end Fianna Fáil are slightly more in the middle and the way in which Fianna Fáil always used to differentiate itself from Fine Gael was that yes it was a party for in favour of business and it was in favour of enterprise and it liked to give businesses a leg up by giving them a slightly lower tax rate perhaps or giving them a few grants to try and get going but Fianna Fáil always had slightly closer to its heart this idea of and sorry again to use a fancy term social mobility and that's the idea that if you are born into uh, you know working classes or if you're born into a fairly you know impoverished or a, a difficult household that there should always be the ability for the state to help pull you up to provide you with a job which allows you to earn as much as you need to do to have a better standard of living from that in which you inherited uh, and that has always been sort of at the core of Fianna Fáil uh, and part of the reason I know you don't want to bring in other parties just yet but part of the reason oh, why can't. people have always found it difficult to tell the difference between a Fianna Fáil government and a Fine Gael government is because Fine Gael up until four or five years ago were never in government without having the Labour Party in there alongside them. And what a lot of people would think is that the Labour Party has always had the same sort of aspirations around this idea of social mobility, this idea of being able to work your way into a better standard of living um, that Fianna Fáil has always had built in. So when you take them together... Fine Gael and Labour have always, by and large, when you put the two of them together, you take their the red and the blue and you sort of mix it together into a kind of a purpley colour. That their purpley colour kind of has the same outlook on life as Fianna Fáil always did. Right. And it's and it's been okay. very difficult to 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 prove or disprove that until you get to the last four or five years where Fine Gael have been in power without Labour, and then you see maybe the influence that Labour might have been able to have. And what what would that be? So I don't know much about the Labour Party at all because um well, I don't your, know. Your granddad didn't of, talk about them because they weren't involved in the Civil War. My granddad never talked about them. Um, he used to say some things about unions that I didn't quite understand because I was young. And um, yeah, I I sort of just associate the Labour Party. I When I was actually doing research for this podcast, I saw that the Labour Party started way back like 100 years ago. Mm. And I thought that they were sort of a flash in the pan with... Joan Burton quite recently so I really have very little knowledge about the Labour Party No they, they've been around they, they uh, are possibly the, the oldest mainstream party because if you take the attitude that, that, that today's Sinn Féin is not the same as the, the Easter Rising Sinn Féin then Labour would be the oldest uh, party in Ireland because they were founded on the back of um, what, what's become known as the Dublin Lockout but basically the Dublin Lockout the, the potted summary of it is that there was a, a really uh, wealthy employer who basically just decided that when his employees started looking for a little bit too much he basically decided no if you're going to ask for too much I would rather just sack you all and have you locked outside the factory than allow you in oh, and okay. allow you to charge whatever I want and the um, union started yeah that, that that's basically it was the origin of, of the, the trade union movement and at its the easiest way to explain the Labour Party is that as the name sort of implies it is all about you know those who provide the labour should have should be you know get the most reward from it it's basically the trade union movement as a political party and the Labour Party has always had very close links to the trade union movement in fact there's always basically been this kind of unofficial link between Labour and SIP2 which until quite recently was the country's biggest trade union um, that they were always kind of two sides of the same coin that SIP2 would try to represent you in the workplace but that the Labour Party would try to represent you in politics and everything that well, now a trade union would want get it. is basically so like what the Labour Party would want So if you're a business owner 
or the guy who owns the factory, you're not really going to want the Labour Party or trade unions because then your workers have more power and you can't basically treat them like slaves, which yeah, in people effect. want to do because people are greedy. Yeah, and in fact, and, and, and Fianna Fáil has always been, uh, you know, quite good at sort of managing those two competing things because if you are a factory owner, obviously you you it is in your very narrow financial self-interest not to have organised trade unions and these guys being able to, you know, bargain collectively and to drive up a better deal for themselves. Um, but Fianna Fáil, by the same token, have always been, yeah, we want to represent the workers. We, we also want to make sure that those who are creating the work are also entitled to a fair amount of reward for themselves. And that's why you have lower corporate tax rates so that you have a really good enterprise grants or that you have sort of have help for people who are trying to provide employment for others. So they've always tried internally. They're, they're such a big party and they, they represent so many different competing interests that there was always really an argument that in Fianna Fáil, you got the whole package, that you got someone who was pro-business, but you also got someone who was pro-worker. And they also tried to make sure, uh, by and large, that the rewards of one never really came at the expense of the others, that they were trying to lift everyone at the same time. So they would never try to create a culture that was too good for business owners without making sure that those who were working for those businesses got their fair slice of the pie and vice versa as well. Whereas you might argue that Fine Gael historically were a little bit more focused on the businessman and Labour were more focused on the worker but the two of them were always in government together so it kind of balanced out anyway. And you talk a lot there in the past tense has anything fun are you doing that sort of out of so that we don't ruffle any feathers or has something big changed <laughs> recently? Uh, it's it's a little bit of uh, not wanting to ruffle feathers I suppose I mean I guess, I a guess lot, it, a No it is it's definitely I, more pointed to talk no, but in the I, present I, tense I, about. I, I think a lot of people uh, think that the Labour Party has perhaps sacrificed a, a lot of those goals because certainly the last time the Labour Party was in government and it was alongside Fine Gael it was in 2011 it was just after the IMF had arrived in town the country was broke it basically couldn't pay for its own affairs it it was having to borrow tens of billions a year just to be able to pay for the wages of guards and nurses and doctors and teachers and everything else Uh, and we could barely keep the lights on it resulted in a lot of austerity and people thought that they were electing the Labour Party to try and you know ring fence or to try and prevent austerity from taking its toll on your average working person and in fact a lot of people would think that the Labour Party not only failed to do that but that they perhaps perpetuated some of that austerity and that is why the Labour Party has kind of fallen into this decline you know the the post Eamon Gilmore Joan Burton decline which is perhaps a little bit of why the Social Democrats have now arisen because the Social Democrats kind of represent the same view this idea that you know the ordinary working person should have you know should be able to get their fair chunk of the pie um but that at least they're not tainted by the history of the Labour Party and some of the difficult decisions the Labour Party's had to make while while taking power. Okay, so you've just moved on to the SOC Dems or the Social Democrats. There, I just, before we move into those, what I'm going to call the smaller parties. Sure. There has, there was a, there's an underbelly of distrust for the larger parties, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because of how the last kind of decade and and before that has gone. Mm-hmm. And I was always kind of under the impression that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael were one thing and then on the other side were all the others and that they were all kind of this pastel-coloured uh, 
group of alternatives that all kind of were the same thing but that is definitely not the case well I suppose um, it, it's easy to fall into that view though because Ireland did have what, what people called for decades basically a two and a half party system where the, there was only Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil were the two big parties then there was Labour which was a kind of a half the size of the others but was still a kind of a big enough party and for a long time there was virtually nobody else in fact if you go back um you know, 50 or 55 years or so, there was a general election, I think in the 1960s, in which the only TDs that were elected were Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Labour, and literally one independent TD. And the independent, as it happened, was a former member of Fine Gael who had left over different disagreements or local factors or, or something else going on. So, like, there was basically, like, nothing else. And and it's mad to think how, you know, the, the system has now become so much more fractured that alongside those three not only do you have Sinn Féin who are now there as a big player, but you have the Social Democrats and the Green Party and some of the other you know, smaller parties that are represented now, like your, the likes of the, the Socialist Party, which is what became Solidarity. Uh, the Socialist Workers' Party is what became People Before Profit. And now you have like dozens of independent TDs knocking around the doll as well, that there are so many other different little flavours. I suppose the fact that there are now so many smaller parties represented in the doll is probably a reflection of how people don't feel like the big two cut the mustard anymore or that they maybe feel like after so many decades of being in government together that they realise that maybe the emperor doesn't have any clothes and that what they thought Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael could deliver is not actually what they were capable of doing and that's why they've gone for other smaller newer options. But it sometimes feels like a little bit of an X-factor audition when it's like you aren't happy with the pop stars that are out there or you see someone on TV and you're like, I could do that. And so then you go in like these smaller parties. And maybe I'm being cynical, but like. What power can a smaller party have in a government that is run by two large parties? Well, I suppose uh, there are two competing views to that. And I know that a lot of people who were involved in the Green Party uh, the last time that the Greens were in government, uh, for, for people who don't know the full history, the Greens were in government alongside Fianna Fáil between 2007 and 2011. And when they were elected, it was on this premise that, you know, the economy is going well, but now it's time that we started to worry about the future and the state of the planet. So let's elect the Greens to go in alongside uh, Fianna Fáil and then we'll, we'll all be happy with the outcome. And then, of course, it turns out that the, the backside fell out of the economy and everyone lost their jobs and a lot of people lost their homes and it was a really, really grim time. Uh, and the Greens bore the brunt of that. They previously had six seats and they ended up with, with none in the, in the general election that came afterwards. Um, there's two views to it. Firstly, you could say that, well, if you are a smaller party, you could hold the balance of power. And you could say that like now when you're looking at the, the, the prospect that we're in, I mean, uh, maybe by the time people get to listen to this podcast, maybe we'll have a government formed. But at the time that we're recording this, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have agreed to work together, but they don't have enough seats in the Dáil to be able to have an absolute majority. So you could say that in times like this, if you add in the Green Party and its 12 seats that it has in the Dáil right now, uh, that they are therefore enough to, you know, to guarantee a majority and that therefore they should use that influence to get certain things out of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil that they wouldn't otherwise do. Basically do a deal and make that the price of your power. That uh, if you are going to allow Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil to run the country for the next few years, at least do it in a way which is environmentally sustainable or do it in a way which involves increases in public transport or do it in a way which resu- which results in fewer carbon emissions or more people working from home or other things which are necessary to safeguard the future of the planet that we actually live on. So that's one view. The other view is that once you've already done the deal, that maybe you can just become 
completely overruled. And a lot of people in the Greens think that is actually what happened, that no matter what you got Fianna Fáil to agree to do in 2007... Once you're in, they just once, overrule Once you're you. in, they, they completely run the rules over you. Because once you're in, you can't threaten to walk out of government at every time there's a disagreement because eventually they're going to call your bluff. They're going to say, well, no, we're just not going to agree to, you know, subsidise an allotment in every housing estate or whatever you might want. Um, And they'll they'll simply just refuse to do it. And if you walk out of government, then of course you've just compromised any power that you'll ever have and you're never going to get it back again. So it's always a bit of a balancing act. Um, I guess it's, it's impossible to say which of those two schools of thought is completely correct. There's probably some logic or some merit to both of them, truth be told. Um, But fundamentally that there's there's those two views either you get the deal out of them and, and that's the point of, of being in there but then conversely once the deal is done and you're in you don't actually have any way to guarantee that the deal is delivered that's... Um, some some Green Party pe- people say that um, in their programme for government which is basically their their full agreement under which they agreed to share power together um, Fianna Fáil agreed to cut carbon emissions by I think three or three and a half percent every year while the Greens were in there alongside them. And the Greens said, brilliant, this is what what an achievement. We have now got Fianna Fáil to agree that we're going to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 3% every year. This is really good for the planet. Excellent. Job well done. And then when push came to shove, Fianna Fáil just simply refused to do it. And there was basically nothing that the Greens could do because you couldn't just threaten to walk out. Eventually, when same? things got so sour, they did just walk out anyway, of course. Isn't it the same on a on a... Like, that's kind of a macro level, but on a micro level, the people who come knocking at your door... To, for looking for your vote during an election and they say they're going to deliver you the sun, moon and stars and there's no way of really holding them to account once they get in and the only way that you can, I mean, you can check, but if they don't do what they said they would do, there's nothing you can do except not vote for them the next time. Yeah, this is it. The basic, the only thing you can do is, is to vote them out afterwards and that that's just, unfortunately, it's the nature of democracy that you don't get consulted on anything or everything all the time, that you only have elections at fixed intervals and you choose whoever you think is best placed to represent what you want done, whether you want there to be a high tax economy where the state pays for loads of stuff or whether you want there to be a low tax economy where you get to decide how your money is spent, but you go without some services as a result. Um, And then, yeah, in five years time, you decide whether the people you elected are are up to the job and then you get to to change their minds. But I mean, yeah, like the the nature of politics, unfortunately, particularly when it comes to someone knocking on your door, is that you have no idea what they are promising everyone else as well. So at least with those who are involved in a political party, you have a broad idea of what their outlook on the world is like. You know that someone in Sinn Féin, for example, you know, favours relatively high taxes on those who can afford them and then who want to use that money to pay for services for those who can't afford them. At least you have that broad idea. If you have an independent uh, person knocking on your door looking for your vote, by and large, you might not have have any idea what they're promising. Like you might say, you know, you might tell that independent candidate at your door, I am prepared to pay for higher taxes if it means that every child in the country has decent childcare and parents aren't crippled with the costs. And they might go, yeah, perfect, I'll deliver that, grand, you can count on me. And they might go to the next door and the next person in the next house has no problem with childcare and they want to pay fewer taxes because they'd like to be able to afford a decent holiday every year. And the same independent candidate might say, yeah, vote for me, I'll deliver that. And really, you've got no way of knowing. I mean, of course, at least if they, they come to your door and they say, this is what I stand for, or if you know they've been involved in a political party in the past, at least you might have some sense of their general steer on things. But of course, the, the nature of politics, unfortunately, is that when you elect someone, you do give them all the power to do everything for the forthcoming few years. And the only way you but can ever what, really punish them is by by not voting them the next time. What power 
and I don't want to dwell too long on this, but like what power does an independent TD actually have? Well, similar person? to the smaller parties that basically that they're, they, they could become all important. Um, you know, again, in, in the current Yes, if they're the yeah. like the thing that tips it over. Yeah, that they, they could be the swing vote, which gets you into government or not. And, and it's happened before, you know, in in previous governments where the the Taoiseach of the day has had only just short of an overall majority. And if you draft in two or three more independents, then that's what gets you over the line. And then the the independent basically does what any other political party would do. They they do a deal where in exchange for their vote or their support for the government, then they get certain things conceded to them uh, as a result um, like Jackie Healy Ray the father of Michael and Danny is perhaps the most famous example because when he supported a Fianna Fáil government back in 1997 he got this massive deal for Kerry uh, where basically like there was suddenly loads of motorways delivered for Kerry or those new hospitals or all these new facilities yeah. which were delivered for Kerry which weren't necessarily being delivered for everywhere else but that was the result of electing an independent TD who would do a deal with whoever was in power I'll support you as long as you, as long as you take care of my area. Um, yeah. The guy who invented this idea uh, was a guy called Tony Gregory, who back in the 1980s, uh, and this was in the real, the the, the pinnacle of the Fianna Fáil versus Fine Gael years, where there was like three general elections in 18 months, and it was always really, really delicately poised, and you were never sure who'd be able to form the government. Um, in 1982, Tony Gregory was a very rare independent TD, and he did a deal with Fianna Fáil, who didn't share his outlook in the world at all. You know, Fianna Fáil where, you know, by and large, we want to support big business just as much as we want to support, you know, your average man. Uh, Tony Gregory was basically a socialist who was only caring about the, the welfare of the downtrodden and underprivileged people in the north inner city of Dublin. But they did a deal because Fianna Fáil said, right, well, if you vote for us and you agree to put us in power, we will give you all of this investment against, you know, for uh, drug treatment projects or for community outreach stuff, stuff that's trying to make the lives of your people uh, that bit more that bit more comfortable or that bit more privileged. And he did the deal. And it's kind of become the template now that everyone else tries to follow, that if you elect an independent TD, you're sort of doing it on the hope that the numbers could be so fine or so tight that actually that independent could be the one to to get the deal and bring home the bacon. And so we've talked about Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, the Green Party and Labour. Yeah, well, we should mention just a, a little bit more in Sinn Féin actually just to, to mention their, sort of their, their view on things. Obviously, economically, yeah. uh, we, we kind of know where they stand. I mean, and they, they would be really keen to hammer home the idea that they're not in favour of higher taxes for everyone. They're in favour of higher taxes on those who earn the most money because they only want to tax those who they say can afford it. They're also big in favour of taxing companies at a far higher rate than they are right now because you're you're not, as they see it there, you're not taking the money off a person, you're taking it off a company, but that if you take more money off a big company, like the likes of your Apples or Facebooks or Googles, then suddenly you can pay for an awful lot more stuff which will help out those who are most vulnerable. So that's their, their general view. To, to reverse back just a few decades as well, by the way, um, Sinn Féin have always opposed the idea or like this kind of the the settlement or the, the, the compromise that everyone reached where over time people said, okay, yeah, fair enough. We don't have all 32 counties. We only support the 26. Um, Sinn Féin never made peace with that. Um, Sinn Féin, in fact, uh, if you go and read the party rulebook, strictly speaking, Sinn Féin, you could argue, doesn't actually recognise the 26 county state at all because Sinn Féin says that it owes its allegiance to the Republic of 1916 which is the one which failed and which doesn't exist today but Sinn Féin have always been a little bit less accepting of the idea of um, part of Ireland still being under British rule and that of course is their their whole political 
reason for being is to try and, and end that rule through whatever way they can. And what's the story with um, Sinn Féin and the IRA? So, uh, again, having said that Sinn Féin's allegiance is to the 1916 uh, Republic, uh, and sorry again for all the kind of boring history stuff, but if you do want to understand the context of the relationship between Sinn Féin and the IRA, you do have to go back a little bit. Um, so, the when the first doll was founded back in 1919 with all of those Sinn Féin MPs that I said, the likes of your... Eamon de Valera's and Michael Collins's and everyone else who got elected to Westminster but decided to pitch up in Dublin instead. Um, the IRA was basically the army of that state. They proclaimed a brand new Irish Republic. They said that that was the Republic which had actually been established in 1916 and the IRA was its army. And that is how they portrayed it. They said, right, we are a brand new country. We are a full country, the same as uh, the USA or Germany or France or anything else. And the IRA is our army. And of course, then... We had the split between those who were pro-treaty and anti-treaty. And there are some people who basically believed, and this has always kind of formed part of Sinn Féin thinking, that the Dole which approved the treaty, and if anyone who's seen the, the Michael Collins film, it's where, you know, uh, Dev and everyone else, Alan Rickman, they all get up and walk out in a hall. The treaty is this document that about the six counties, yeah? Yeah, the, the treaty is the deal yeah. that, Mike, that Michael Collins brought home, which, which got yeah, the, yeah. the freedom to achieve freedom, to but not outright freedom. Um, And if people have seen the film, it's where, you know, the the treaty passes very narrowly, I think 64 votes to 57, but the 57 who lose are so outraged that they simply just walk out and they end up starting a civil war. Um, The IRA has always taken the view that actually the Irish Republic or the Irish Dole could never possibly agree to a treaty which uh, dissolved itself. And that's kind of what they thought they saw the treaty as doing. They said, this is a 32 county government. No 32 county government has the authority to basically hand back six of the counties or to make any arrangement which dilutes Ireland's independence. So they've always taken the view that, in fact, every subsequent Irish government, every 26 county administration that ever existed afterwards was illegitimate, didn't exist, didn't have the authority to exist, and that the only true government was the one from 1916. And so, and, and I appreciate that this is getting a bit tenuous, but honestly, this is the, the tenuous logic that a lot of people have stuck to in the meantime. Um, because that government basically ceased to exist because it didn't have any power, it didn't have any TDs or didn't have any kind of real organs existing, the IRA was the only part of that government that still existed. And al- although it became more tenuous over time, basically what was left of the IRA as an army began to think of itself as being the only legitimate part of any Irish government because it was the only 32-county organisation that existed. And Sinn Féin supported that because they basically perceived it as being, you know, uh, they, they thought that that argument was fair. They thought that the, the that's IRA... Like you not, that's like you not liking Richard Branson and therefore insisting that you don't work for Virgin Media News, you work for TV3 News. And just yeah, not updating that, your information. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a it's a kind of a good one. Or if I disagreed with the outcome of last year's Champions League final, and I just refused to recognise Liverpool as European champions, and I now inhabit some sort of strange universe in which Spurs hold the European Cup, or I don't like Dublin winning all these football all Irelands, and therefore in the universe that I inhabit, the last correct All Ireland was in, back in 1999, and therefore me, they're still the All Ireland champions. Like it's it's kind of it's tenuous, but that is the logic that a lot of people clung to because they said it just wasn't possible for the Irish state to agree to split itself up. So how does that affect the Sinn Féin of Mary Lou Macdonald, like now the Sinn Féin that we know? Like, does, Sinn, does Mary Lou Macdonald believe all of that? Does she believe that she works for TV3 instead of Virgin Media? Uh Honestly, it, it is a question that is so rarely put that you'd probably actually have to ask them. It, it still remains in, you know, 
like the first paragraph of the Sinn Féin rulebook of the Sinn Féin constitution is that they owe their allegiance to the Republic of 1916 and not to the Free State of 1922, which is actually what became the 26th County Republic that we live in today. Now, you could probably argue that there is a big difference in between what Sinn Féin preaches and what Sinn Féin practices. I mean, obviously, if Sinn Féin is trying to proclaim that today's 26th County Republic is illegitimate, well, then how come it's aspiring to be in government? Like, you wouldn't want to be in government of a country that yes. you you object Don't to existing. Uh, yes. And, you know, also Sinn Féin were a very fundamental part of drawing up the, the Good Friday Agreement and the idea of power sharing in Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin have been in government in Northern Ireland since 2005. They're clearly not going to agree to govern over a jurisdiction that they don't think actually exists. Sinn Féin, for the last decade or so, have been, you know, contesting elections for the president of Ireland. Uh, they've wanted Martin McGuinness or they've wanted Leonie Rieda to be the president. And you surely aren't going to want to be the president of a state that you don't believe exists. So it's a kind of a, it's a part of their dogma. Like it, it's written into the rule book, but I think in all practical terms, they accept now that although they don't want Ireland to be partitioned and they still do believe in the goal of a 32 county republic, that they do at least accept that we do now have two different jurisdictions or two different countries on the island. Northern Ireland exists in one corner. The Republic of Ireland exists everywhere else. And although they're not happy about it, they do at least accept that that is the way things are. I would argue that very many people who vote Sinn Féin haven't a bull's notion of what you've just said, but instead they feel that they're brutally unhappy with the status quo of the government as it is. And Sinn Féin seem to be this other... Um, engaged, activist, angry, sort of uh, anti-establishment party. And that's actually what they're going for. Yeah, well, that, that's probably true. And I think the part of the reason why they did so well in the last general election was because, you know, particularly because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have sort of been in power together for the last four years. Like they're they're not in a pro, in a full traditional coalition but Fianna Fáil have been able to pull some strings and get some stuff out of Fine Gael so a lot of people think that they've basically been in government together for the last four years but if you're not happy with how Ireland has gone for the last four years if you're struggling to pay for your rent if you're struggling to pay for childcare and then you have Sinn Féin coming along and saying you know a really good intelligent articulate guy like Owen O'Brien saying we have the money to build tens of thousands more public houses or housing at a much more affordable level then of course you're going to say well why don't we give this a try or if Piers Doherty says that we can pay for all these things by taxing multinationals or by taxing big business or by taxing those who can afford to give but by cutting the taxes for those who are poorest they, they think it's possible and if you're unhappy with how the big two have run Ireland. Of course, it makes perfect sense that you might want to try something new. Uh, and of course, even though it might still be part of Sinn Féin's worldview that the, the state might be illegitimate or whatever, then I guess a lot of people kind of see that as an irrelevance because we now know that we have a 26-county republic that people are, you know, not happy with, but at least they kind of, they accept, they're satisfied with the arrangements that we have. Uh, then why wouldn't you park the historical thing and talk about what Sinn Féin is offering your voter in 2020? Sure. Just just as much as, you know, Fianna Fáil once upon a time also said it would never sit in Dáil Éireann again because they didn't want to sit in a 26-county parliament, but they did. You know, it used to be part of uh, Fianna Fáil's whole philosophy that they would never go into coalition with anyone because they thought coalitions were a recipe for instability, that you'd always have this trade-off where your junior partner could afford to walk out at any time. But then when the numbers demanded that they do it, they did anyway. They always said that they would never go into coalition with Fine Gael. And yet, at the time that we record this, 
they're prepared to do it anyway. So like these things always evolve. And if you become too hamstrung by your history, then you'll never really move on. So I suppose while the parties do all have this kind of historical view of what Ireland should be, that it's it's understandable that people park it in favour of what their view of Ireland 2020 should be, because that is by and large what the parties themselves have done. And there's just two more parties I want to touch on before we finish. Um, the Sock Dems and Solidarity People Before Profit. The concept of like people before profit, like everyone is people and, you know, people want to feel safe and feel, you know, if everyone, sometimes people like the social Democrats or solidarity people before profit, they, they preach a line that I can't see how anyone wouldn't vote for them because everyone is people. And, and, and obviously in that people who are profit they don't want people before profit because they are the profit. But mm. why are these? Sometimes I'm looking for the catch with these parties because they preach a lot of um, idealistic views. And then I don't understand why they don't get more traction. Uh, well, I suppose when it comes to solidarity, people before profit. And by the way, even though they are always presented as being one party, in fact, uh, right now, I think they are two parties and one of those parties has split in two. So People Before Profit is actually a separate party to Solidarity and Solidarity now has two parts within it, if that isn't way too confusing. Oh God, Basically, okay. the, the, the smaller left-wing parties have always had this history of splitting and not being able to to live with, alongside each other. And whether it's because of academic disagreements or whether it's personality things or whatever, they, they do have this long-standing history of never quite being able to, to, to get up in the same house. But that that's kind of history to to one degree. You have now solidarity people before profit. They are to all intents and purposes a single group in the doll. They have five TDs. Uh, where is the catch? I suppose it is because people feel like a the promises are completely unrealistic. That you could never deliver all of the things that they're promising to do. Because how would you be able to afford it? How can you promise to house and feed and clothe and provide healthcare for everyone if? you're taxing companies so largely that they would simply refuse to set up and that they would go to some other country instead. And B, because we live in a capitalistic world. You know, I I work for a company which produces three TV stations and it produces news bulletins in the middle of that. And it, it does all of that because it thinks it can make money. It thinks that it can pay the workers wages and still make some money for the people who own it. You know, you uh, are a, a screenwriter or an author because you think that it's possible or you and publishers think it's possible that you can sell books or sell TV scripts or sell versions of TV shows and be able to make a bit of money out of it. Everyone ultimately aspires to be able to make a bit more money or to aspire to a higher standard of living. Doing that kind of requires, at least most people would think, requires some amount of capitalism because you have to be able to produce something which is worthwhile to someone else. But if if you go if you take the Labour Party view of the workers should always get a fair deal, if you push that too far, then no one would ever create a job because it wouldn't be worth their while. Like why would I set up a new business and, and recruit and pay for the wages of twenty other people? If I'm going to end up paying them so much that there's nothing left for me, if there's no reward for me, why would I do it? So it's it's yeah. a kind of a case of extremes. I guess they would say that there is no price that isn't worth paying to make sure that every person in the country is fed and clothed and educated and has proper health care and everything else. But I guess everyone else thinks that it's a bit unrealistic because if you don't give companies an incentive to start up in the first place, then there's no point in having companies and no one else would ever go to the the risk of putting their own money behind a business which might collapse and that if there's no sense of reward for them for doing so. Okay, well, 
I'm going to leave it there because this episode was meant to be, and I think is, a politics 101 where we have got now like a basic understanding of each of the parties, certainly why they're different and what each of them stands for. Because as you say, by the time you're listening to this, we might have a government. I don't think we quite will yet, but no, I don't think as so either. government formation goes on, I want people, I want to be able to cover that with you and with other contributors. And so this episode will be a nice touch point for people to start off politics 101 so that as we get into more detailed discussions about what's happening day to day we know the colors of each of the parties and what they stand for yeah totally and i know that it's it's going to be a a lot of people will probably think that this was a little bit too historical but i I do think that the history is important because to understand the differences or the worldviews between those parties you, you sort of have to understand where they came from and why they were created in the first place like you might say well what's the difference between the social democrats and labor you, you sort of have to understand that labor was in power it made some decisions that a lot of people didn't like a lot of people think that they sold out and that the social democrats is an attempt to revive the same spirit but at least without the baggage of history so like it's important to to understand that there there and is the tarnished backgrounds brand. And on all those sorts of things, yeah. So I, 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 sorry if if people think that it's maybe a little bit too intense, but I do think it's important that you kind of understand uh, where we were, where we were, because you, you could argue otherwise that if you're creating a brand new Irish political, you know, uh, landscape right now, you probably wouldn't start with the, the the bodies or the sort of the fracturing that we have, but we have them, and you have to understand why we have them in the first place. And I think it's important to understand as well why it makes me understand why in the first few elections. I blindly voted for who my grandfather told me to vote for because it meant something to him because he lived through it. Mm. But for me, it meant something to me to just do something my granddad wanted me to do. And so history is important if only to understand that it's done and we're over and now you can do your research and vote for who you feel will do the best for you. Yeah, I mean, like there was literally a war fought over it. It was it was such an existential question. You know, the Ireland was was part of the the British Empire or part of the UK itself for like over three hundred years, and people were really unhappy about it. So, were people prepared to accept what Michael Collins brought home as a practical solution, or were they going to hold out and say nothing is acceptable except for outright and complete and utter independence for all thirty two counties? Like it it was it it. You know, people do say about the Civil War, it pitted brother against brother, and it absolutely did. And it was like a, a deeply wounding thing for a brand new country to have to go through. And it's it's hardly any wonder that the, the political parties that grew out of the two sides of that, that grew out of uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, um, you know, that they were so entrenched and that they, they saw each other as such natural enemies for so long because it was such a, a, a deep, deep divide. And just one final thing, which I, I kind of forgot to say, but which is probably important to note, that the, the modern Sinn Féin, began to come back on the scene to represent this idea that Ireland's independence was unfinished, if you like. Like, that that idea only really began to kind of reach a resurgence once Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael began to park the historical stuff and once they began to represent interests other than which side of a war you were on. So there has always been this undercurrent of, you know, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace, you know? Okay, Gavin, thank you so much. We will chat to you again as things progress. Fingers crossed. Thanks very much. me again if you made it through that podcast thank you and well done on a side note i want to do an episode down the line where i answer questions that you ask have any questions about me ireland the world yourself any questions at all 
I'll be putting a question box on Instagram. My handle is at Stephanie Preisner. That's S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E. And you can send me your questions. And in a later episode, I will answer all of those questions without a guest. I hope that you can get involved and ask whatever's been on your mind. Share the podcast if you enjoyed it. Uh, Rate it and review it on iTunes. That helps us to get up further in the charts and helps more people to find the podcast. You could share it on your Instagram. If you have any feedback or any questions, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Steph Preisner or on Instagram at Stephanie Preisner. That's Steph with an F. Our music was brought to you by Only Ruin. Our graphic design and artwork is by Kahlo Gara. And this podcast was produced by the Headstuff Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.